This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Today is the top 10 reasons to be an architect, and the story behind the post that launched the website that started it all. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Landon Williams. And today, we're going to discuss one of the most popular posts I've ever written. On February 22nd, 2010, I sat down to write a post that, unbeknownst to me at the time, would fundamentally change my life. For the better, hopefully. Yeah. Sounds dramatic. But it's true. Intense. It is true. So, here's the story. Some people have heard it. The vast majority of people have not. The unwritten stories of Bob. That's right. The annals. (laughs) <laughs> volume 1100 are we on i need to make sure that it doesn't come off like the anals yeah let's not do that okay this was right in the very beginning when i started writing my website mm-hmm. and the story behind that was well i don't want to tell that story that's not why we're here today so i'm not going to tell that story but when i wrote this post my site was only 34 days old mm. this was back on february 22nd 2010 okay right? so that was it's 2018, September something right now. And I'd read a post that another person, well, actually it was an interview. I read an online interview with a guy who was up in New York who was at the time, in my opinion, really knowledgeable on the subject of architecture and architects and the built community mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Had a lot of respect for the guy. Still do, actually. But in this interview, he kind of listed a couple of things that he thought were unfair to architects. And one of them had to do with, like, architects don't make enough money. Okay. Right? Which I would like all architects to make more money. Let's just get that straight right now. Yeah, I think everyone would love more money. (laughs) Who wouldn't? I could replace every barber wants to make more money. (laughs) I disagree. Every florist wants to make more money. Every rocket scientist wants to make more money. That's a truth, right? So at one time, it's a throwaway comment, okay? But it's, I get so much of that on my website, it kind of stuck me in the wrong way. And I kind of went, well, if you're better at what you did, you'd probably get paid more, mm-hmm. right? It's, that's market economics. If you have a skill set that people need, they will pay you for it. It's yeah. pretty straightforward. It has nothing to do with architecture. So I, it's, it's, this is a kernel that sits in the back of my head. So I was all feeling funky. And I was on a work trip. I was down in Galveston, Texas. We were doing fire stations at the time, and I was attending a conference for fire chiefs and city managers and stuff like that. Okay. So I'm sitting in my hotel room, because I'm by myself, right? And I, I've been to Galveston lots of times, and it was towards the evening, and I didn't just feel like walking around. So I was writing a lot of posts at the time, and I decided I wanted to write an article that kind of stuck back at the feeling that I was left after reading that interview where that guy said architects didn't make enough money. Mm-hmm. And so I said, all right, I'm going to list all the reasons why I think you should be an architect, why money is not part of it, right? Which it is. Everybody needs to get paid to work, right? So I'm just, that's not an argument. Get to the root of it rather than- Yeah, let's get rid of the stuff that's like universal truths, regardless of what your job is, okay? So I said, I'm going to give myself 30 minutes. That's it. I didn't plan for it. I sat down, opened my laptop. I go, start, 30 minutes. Write 10 reasons why this is the great job, why Mm -hmm. you should be an architect. So I came up with that list. And to be fair, the very next day I published the top 10 reasons not to be an architect. Right? Yeah, it's a little yin and yang. You got to have both sides. I want to provide some balance. Yeah. And the thing that was really crazy is at the time my site, now keep in mind, it's a month old, right? This is day 34. I was getting anywhere between 50 and say 300 people a day. Okay. Right? It's all your grandmas. Yeah. I have that many grandmothers. And after I wrote this post, the site traffic tripled literally overnight. Hmm. And it started getting published in magazines around the world. I have a big stack of them in my closet right now. Is that because it ended up on one particular site or someone linked to it and then it exploded from there? Or is it just... Yeah. Actually, there was a guy and I think he was in Portugal. Okay. The tiny community of Portugal. And he translated into Portuguese. And then it just, I don't know. I don't really know how it happened because I wasn't that savvy into yeah. how things like this worked at the time. It found its way into the world of the 
World yeah. Wide Web. Yeah, next thing you know, it got published in a German magazine, and it was in a Turkish magazine, and it's on hundreds of websites at this point. Yeah. And from that moment started an escalation of traffic to my site that didn't diminish or retreat for a period of about eight years. Hmm. Like the first year, you know, I went from having 100, 150, 200, 300 people a day to 1,000, 1,200, 1,500. Wow. So like a jet fuel from a yeah, flame. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> Sadly, I, after like 850 articles on my site, this is not the most popular. It's the fourth most popular post I've ever written. Mm. Interestingly enough, the third most popular, Yeah, the top 10 reasons not to be an architect, <laughs> which I ended up writing a post about how much I hated. I said the top 10 reasons why I wish I hadn't written those top 10 reasons. <laughs> Next week, top 10 reasons I shouldn't have written the article about writing about the article. That's kind of what it was, <laughs> because all of a sudden, this post on why you shouldn't be an architect became really popular as well. And I was mm -hmm. like, no, no, wait, I really like being an architect. <laughs> and I started feeling responsible for turning all these people off. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, you could do replace architect for any other job, yeah. and this list still works, which was kind of the point, but nobody really connected with it in that way. Yeah. Well, with the good, you got to have bad. That's right. Well, you know, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I the bad and the ugly. They don't call it that for nothing. I'd like to hope that you can have some good without the bad coming along with it. Yeah. yeah. But there is that phrase, into every garden, a little rain must fall. Yes. A little rain. Just slightly. <laughs> Don't need a lot of rain. Be sad for a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> so let's get into it. I want to go through that list of 10 items okay. and spend a little time discussing them. So you ready? I am ready. Okay. Let's start with number one. It's a lifestyle, not a job. Architects typically think about architecture all the time. I know I do. And it's not just the capital A architecture, you know, designing huge buildings and projects, but mm -hmm. it goes down to every little thing that I do. If I go somewhere, I look at materials, I look at form, I look at massing and go to lighting. I don't think I could have a conversation with an architect who wouldn't agree that the first thing they do when they go into a restaurant, not to look at the uh, menu, is to look at how things are laid out, look at the lights, look at the ceiling, look at the fixtures. Yeah. I, I remember having, uh, there was a lecture, kind of an internal lecture between the first years in school. And someone was giving a talk about design and like getting into the field. And that's essentially what it boiled down to. They were talking about how design was really a lifestyle. It's not really a profession. It's, I mean, it's a profession, but also, you know, you're living this, this, it's almost a way of life in a way, design. Yeah. Like you're, you're swallowed by it in a sense. Yeah. It's a, the architecture is not necessarily the driver. That's the mm -hmm. release. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. I agree with that. So item number two on that list was people respect architects. Mm -hmm. And I go, I think it's kind of funny that, you know, what really gets pointed out more often than anytime else is that whenever you want a character in a new TV show or in a movie to be the good guy, yeah. they tend to make them architects because people tend to have pretty high opinions of architects. We will frequently make a decision that benefits others mm -hmm. to our own detriment. I wonder how that like got infused into like the psyche of the world almost. So we have this inherent moral compass i guess that we're like drawn to yeah because we do have <laughs> yeah, it's true. yeah I guess a it's moral really compass true. i well i did wrote it i wrote in there i said architects generally aren't viewed as being driven by financial rewards like yeah. doctors might be mm -hmm. and we're not this was an interesting word choice i said as scurrilous as lawyers can be yeah they can be right that they don't care they'll do they'll come for you to get that coin yeah well <laughs> you know kind of like, i mean that's obviously a lot of good lawyers but there's always you always hear about the bad ones. And then when you think about architecture and architects, you know, you don't really think about bad architects. You don't think about architects going like, to like screw people over or anything. It's Well, there's been like, a couple noted ones recently. Well, yeah. Oh, yes. We won't okay. get into it. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't taint the entire field then. That's right. Well, it's a big deal. That's why that's a conversation worth having. That's We're just true. not going to have it today. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, number three was the job is constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and I got in trouble because well, I've touched on this subject many different times. One of the claims I have is that architects are not artists, right? Mm -hmm. We have to address building technology and programming. There's constantly evolving materials and construction methods that are out there. And we are required as a profession to address the demands of the public at large, which includes things like building performance, energy consumption, the use of recycled or repurposed materials, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And that architects create new design concepts that push how modern day construction is executed. And architecture in that capacity 
is one of the few professions that is never static, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's what I like a lot about, like when I was coming to the decision to becoming an architect or thinking about, is it something I want to pursue when I was younger? It's like thinking about, you know, projects, not only like the profession and the tools you use are changing, but also the nature of your projects are always changing. Like you're, you're not working on the exact same thing every time. And that's, that's what I enjoy about uh, maybe the smaller firm. It's having different project types to work on and different yeah. situations and those kind of things. I agree with that. Yeah. Now, now that is kind of specific to where you work and kind of the market sectors because, yeah. you know, now a lot of, of graduate architecture degrees, those people are coming out with specializations in healthcare or other kind really? of, oh yeah. yeah. When Nick in our office, that's what he's got. He's got a specialization in his master's to help. Not even knew that. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to Nick. Go Nick. <laughs> so I agree with that. You know, and I, I yeah. think that you can be specialized based on the type of job you have and where you work. Mm -hmm. And while this may not be a unilateral truth, my experience since I've graduated in the early 12th century <laughs> <laughs> was that uh, smaller firms require you to wear more hats and therefore mm -hmm. suit people with my distraction by shiny things kind of mentality yeah allow me to not be bored because like look at the project we've done and say last year we've done some commercial development we've done a lot of interior design refurbishment build out mm -hmm. we've done houses we've done a church we've done a school we're working on renovating a giant skyscraper at the moment yeah i mean there's a few things that we won't do yeah and and I was telling somebody about this last night. The reason why I'm proud about that really broad kind of umbrella of projects we work on. And they say, don't you have to be an expert at all those to do them? And I said, you know what I'm an expert at? Getting things done. <laughs> <laughs> I get it done, man. And then I punched him in the face. <laughs> no, don't question my abilities. People like working with us. We get hired because the yeah. experience is worthwhile and fun mm -hmm. and and. We solve problems. Yeah, and we've got a certain amount of knowledge and a broad array of fields where we can we feel like we can cover it. <laughs> if we need to figure out, like figure something out, then you have the tools in place to teach yourself, essentially. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. Mark it down. Number four, artistic freedom and personal expression. So as an architect, we're given certain project parameters that help guide the direction of our projects. Mm -hmm. Budgets, lots, locations, zoning, building type, all that kind of good stuff. We are then, as a group, given the freedom to pursue artistic embodiment of those parameters in our projects. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, you know, if you get if you had took ten architects with the exact same client and the exact same project parameters, you will get ten different solutions. Oh yeah, every time, right? And it's that it's that last thing that really kind of should jump out at people, right? That ten architects will never same the will never solve the exact problem the same way mm -hmm. and it's that latitude is why and i think that along with people like you right they want to work with you is what makes this as a topic the artistic freedom and personal expression so valuable yeah yeah i think it's not only like maybe from a client perspective but as a like maybe personally you know like as you're developing and you're thinking about what kind of legacy you know you're kind of leaving on the world you have these moments of like personal um injection like you're designing this thing and it's living as a thing in the world and you, you had some impact in the world i think the impact part of your personal design is really important yeah well you know we can even add on to that to talk about the responsibility that i know i feel at times mm -hmm. but that we have ownership for the work that we create even though we don't create it for us because we have responsibility for yeah. what that building does once it once we unleash it into the world <laughs> Right, like a Frankenstein. Well, hopefully you hope you hope it's not Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, you know it could be Michelangelo's David. Yeah, that's, I've done a couple. That's a, that's a better comparison. I've done a couple of those already. <laughs> you know, probably four or five. Yeah, I think. this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so number five on the list, you can be your own boss. Yeah. Right. So with architecture firms, and this is obviously this is true with a lot of different industries. This is not intrinsic or specific yeah but it's a good point for architects right yeah well the vast majority of architectural firms are sole practitioners mm -hmm. right so you can be your own firm of one and still be a viable service provider on almost any size project i believe 
You can enter contests and win commissions for major projects by yourself. And I can't think of another vocation that can give you that level of latitude. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen a team of three people design and prepare construction drawings on a mall project of over a million square feet of uh, leasable space. Wow. I was one of those three. (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) So I know I've seen it happen firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. That's even, uh, I think it aligns even more with architects because sometimes we sort of uh, don't like to listen to authoritative figures. So we kind of, uh, you know, if you're your own boss, you can kind of set your own rules, wake up at 11 a.m. What? No architect does that. No, no. Man, you do that because you're 25 years old. (laughs) Yeah, but there's a certain amount of like, you're running your own kind of, not running your own life, but you're setting your own standards in a sense. Well, you're designing your life. Exactly, yeah. To roll it back into design. Yeah. That's exactly back That's to true. where we started was the idea that I can shape and form what I want to do and how I want to do it mm-hmm. because that's how I know I'll get to the best version of myself. Yeah. Right? It's kind of what makes us arrogant to a certain extent. <laughs> you have to you have to like believe in yourself enough to like take those kind of steps. So you have to have some degree of arrogance, I think, as an architect. Of course, because people are going to tell you all along the way that that sucks or that's bad or yeah. you shouldn't do that. And you need to say, you're wrong and I'm right. There's a, you have to believe in something. I think it's well, what it comes down to. It's a future episode, but it's the ego part of it. Yeah. Right? Okay. And I think there's a big difference. It might just be semantics for some people, but I think there's mm-hmm. a difference between ego and arrogance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's mostly semantics. I yeah. mean, people, those are things that are going to tie together. Yeah. Not a lot of people talk about positive ego, I think. It's, yeah. a lot of, it's mostly negative. kind of. And we're not talking about Freudian ego no, and, yeah. <laughs> and id either, right? We could go into that. We're not going to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to number six. All right. There are tangible and sometimes euphoric results. So anyone who has ever seen a building that they worked on get built knows exactly what I'm talking about. I know that I still get excited to watch my projects getting built. It's like having your own laboratory where you get to experiment and refine things that you consider to be important and worthwhile. It ties back into what we talked about earlier with uh, artistic freedom, which was uh, item number four. Generally speaking, I think I could say that this was a truth across all architects is that architects generally have a sense of ownership on every project they work on. Yep. Right. You're personally invested in the thing you're creating. And I think the ultimate realization of the thing in a tangible way is kind of like the end all of everything. You hope it all comes out as you're kind of dreamed it into being. Yeah, I would agree. Well, you know, we talked a little bit earlier, right? So all the, I don't know if you're starting to see a pattern. All these are kind of semicolon comments from one to the other. Like, oh, yeah. they don't, they're not necessarily standalone things, mm-hmm. right? So when we say that when you work on a project, you have ownership into it, it's because we feel like we have responsibility that it exists. And I think that's part of the reason why we as a profession are so easily taken advantage of from a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. Because somebody will say, I need to spend more time to get this right. And they're going to say, well, I'm not going to pay anymore. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to do it anyway because yeah. I need to make it right. Yeah. You have a personal attachment to it. Yeah. And as a, and so if you go to a doctor and the doctor says, well, you have to pay me because I need to cut that mole out. And you're like, I don't want to pay you. And he's like, all right, I'm not cutting the mole out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Architects don't work that way. Yeah. Maybe it's part of the whole moral sense, I think. If we, I mean, that ties back to your some morality to it. You're like, I'm going to make this thing and it's going to be the best thing imaginable. Like, I'm not going to cut corners or anything. Yeah. I mean, you want it, obviously, to be the best that you can be. Yeah. But that's why we're suckers. <laughs> we are suckers. I mean, uh, hopefully I didn't just expose the loophole for every person on the planet to abuse their architect. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hopefully now the architects though recognize that, you know, maybe they need to charge for those extra services. If it's well, that big of a, at least if it's that important to the client. Well, you know? sometimes the, but the client can go, I'm going to get it if I pay for it or not. Right. Don't do that, clients. <laughs> <laughs> Please. I <laughs> uh, will punch you in the throat. Well, fine, I have a lot of, I'm feeling, up. I'm fired up today. It's football? It's football weekend. Football's got you going. <laughs> okay. Uh, number seven on that list. We can positively impact people's lives. That's kind of a bold statement, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, because if you roll out jack-in-the-boxes, I'm not sure you're positively influencing people's lives necessarily. For a small amount of time. I just totally reduced everyone who does this <laughs> project. Sorry about that. I Sorry for the example, but I feel like it's kind of true. <laughs> so it's rewarding to develop a personal relationship with your client, mm-hmm. particularly when you know that the process will yield a more fruitful end product. So one of the things I should point out when I wrote this list 
the firm where I was working at the time, we almost entirely did residential projects. Mm -hmm. Like very rarely did we stray beyond that. I'd say nine out of every, probably nine and a half out of every 10 was a residence. So your clients were very personally invested. That's right. So when we talk about impacting people's lives, it wasn't like the public at large. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it was the guy that hired me. I'm going to change his life and I'm going to change in a way that's positive. And the way that I can ingrain myself into their life is going to yield a better product because I'm going to know how they live, Mm -hmm. you know, which actually was the seed for a dozen other posts that I wrote on my site. And it had to do with the closer relationship I can have with the people I work with, I can do a better job for them. Yeah. Because let's be honest, there's a huge difference between when you say, this is who I am versus this is what I want versus this is what I need. And some people, the way they see themselves, it's not really who they are. And they might be asking for something that's not really what they want. Mm-hmm. They just think it's what they want because of how they're projecting who, like, like for instance, the example I always use is somebody goes, I want to have this big room to throw parties in. And you go, great. Okay. So let's talk about these parties. Well, I don't throw any now because <laughs> I don't have a space to throw it. That's who I want to be. Yeah. You know, like, they're like, I, I want to throw these cool parties. And then as you learn, you're like, you're not a bro. You're not throwing a cool party. <laughs> you're not that guy. Wow. Right. You got to break them down in the meeting. Yeah. Well, yeah. And they cry. Yeah. And then they fire you. That's all right. That's what bring a lot of tissues. It doesn't happen that way. But you start to understand that really what they want is that it's not the big party. It's the like a quality thing. Mm-hmm. So we have to say, all right, well, we don't need a giant space for 300 people. We need kitchen stadium and we need open dining space that then flows into living room so that you can have you yeah. know, 10 people over, 12 people over. And they can be doing like, this is how you exist. It's not the grand party that you want. Mm-hmm. And that fundamentally will change the end product that they get delivered. Right. But they need to have ownership of that process. Or at the end, they're going to go, where's my big party room? <laughs> right. You're like, you don't need one. And they're like, yeah, but I told you I wanted one. So if you don't go on that journey with them and you don't learn who they are, you can't provide yeah. that service to them that has real value. Yeah. You're not taking things at face value, but you're getting a deeper understanding rather than some generic solution. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing is, if I don't know that person, I couldn't ever tell them that. Yeah. We need to connect in such a way that where I can have a conversation mm-hmm. that allows you to go on that journey. Yeah. I think some of these things are like, they don't teach you in school, like connecting to a client like that. That's a extracurricular kind of thing. It's, you have yeah. to learn it through your process. Yeah. Yeah. You got to learn by doing it, you know, or sitting in a room and watching somebody else do it and just having the mm-hmm. self-awareness to pay attention. But I think, so when I wrote that we can positively impact people's lives, I really meant like on a one-on-one mm-hmm. connection. Then that's not to say that it it's not on a much bigger scale. Yeah. And like people who do like larger public projects, I'm sure they get down and talk to the person that will be using that facility on a day-to-day basis or different types of people that will be using it. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about Sontra Pompidou, mm-hmm. right? How they had an idea for how that building would work in the plaza in front of it. And it turned out to work spectacularly well. Mm-hmm. And people who don't ever use the center still use that space. Yeah. Right. And you're like, they can appreciate it on a different level. And I'm not, and I know for a fact it wasn't part of the programming when they put that building together, but they made a change. Mm-hmm. Right. So item number eight on my list of 10 items, experimentation is expected. I love this one. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's the idea we talked a little bit earlier about if you give 10 different architects the same parameters, they'll come up with a, a different type of project. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a liberating sense for architects here with the idea that part of the reason somebody hired you is because they want your interpretation of the programming and the parameters to yield an end product, right? So they they're, they want you to try. We're expected as a profession to explore different materials, try new things, incorporating emerging technologies. I mean, we're pushing the envelope on all these things. Yeah. Right. That's what, that's what we do. We're expected to say, Hey, we can change the way light enters a building by doing these things. Mm-hmm. And people go, well, why do I care about that? Well, cause we have an opinion about how quality of light impacts the way space gets used or gets perceived or the quality of life for the people when they're working at their desks. And that might not be part of the parameters or part of the programming that's spelled out when it comes to us. But we think it's important. So we start to experiment for how we can solve the problems that we think are important. Yeah. I think it's, we have an understanding of more of the, some of those variables that you don't really think about when you're planning or people who haven't planned spaces before. We're also kind of, uh, 
thinkers. You call it lateral thinkers. So you have the ability to produce a lot of varied options based on the given, you know, small amount of parameters. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, it's part of one-on-one being an architect, know how to like produce various options. Well, you know, I have this conversation with people, not all the time, but it comes mm-hmm. up with some, so my wife, Michelle, is really one of the smartest people that I spend time with. Mm-hmm. And she is, and this is a theory, I'm pretty sure it exists out there already, but I didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. And so I might not be using the right words, but I have this thing that I go, some people are linear thinkers and some people are radial thinkers. And my wife is definitely a linear thinker, you know, and she's got her undergraduate and graduate degrees are in math and, and she gets hired like all the jobs that she's been hired for process and workflow figure into like, she doesn't crunch numbers all day. She Mm -hmm. doesn't, her job has nothing to do with the fact that her education's in math. But she gets hired because her brain works a certain way, which is a byproduct of either what led her into the field of math hmm, or the output of having been educated with a math degree, yeah. right? So yeah. for her, the ability to go from A to B to C to D to E to F, and then you go, F is not the result we wanted. So you go backwards to back to D and then go off on a new tangent. Mm-hmm. Like you can retrace your steps. I think what makes architects special, at least not linear thinkers, I put us in a group called radial thinkers. Mm-hmm. And that is, you give me 10 parameters and I will work all 10 items at the same time. And I will, you know, I will push here and it will pull there and I will work all of them at the same time to find what I think is the best combination, you know, the best, the best result from having worked all 10 items at the same time. Mm-hmm. And there is no real retracing your steps. It's like kind of restarting over yeah. every single time, right? It's like, if I want this to happen, I have 10 items and they're not, they're all at the same time. One A, B, C, D, and E, and F, they're all stacked on top of one another. And it's like, I take a little of A and a little less of B, a little less of C, a whole lot of D, some E, and I do I get to where I want? If not, I try a new arrangement. And I go, I don't, I haven't ever met an architect whose work I admired who is not a radial thinker, who doesn't think of it as a workflow of A to B to C to D in a linear manner. It's always radial. It's all, we tack them all at the same time until we get what we think is the right combination of variables as a single process. Hmm. Patent pending. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> Bob's theory of everything. Theory of that. But mostly just architecture. Of just that. <laughs> so number nine on the list, right? So we're rounding, we're rounding in the home. Longevity of career in the context of which I put on this list was not that you can just work for a long time Mm -hmm. is that you can meaningfully in a rewarding manner work for a long time. So you can practice the profession of architecture literally for as long as you're capable, as long as you want. And you'll always be an architect, even when it's not your job anymore. I don't know any retired architects. I just know architects that aren't working anymore. (laughs) Right. So Mark, most architects, in my opinion, don't really start to become good at being an architect until their fifties or so. And I imagine that you have to come to some sort of understanding as to who you are as an individual before you can start to be consistent Mm -hmm. with your thought process, right? Like if you're still figuring out who you are, you're going to have inconsistent interpretations of data. Yeah. I think it goes back to refining your process. You know, you understand yourself by then, I think. Yeah. Whereas right now, maybe I'm just kind of like exploring every which way. This is cool. Yeah. Right. I like this right now. This seems cool. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I'm going a, I'm to a shoehorn this in here because I've wanted to do blah, blah, blah since I was in school. Yeah. And a lot of architects who are now my age kind of have, we, we all have a secret club. <laughs> <laughs> we eat on Tuesdays. We kind of laugh that whenever we give a design project to someone who's right out of school, mm-hmm. you can see that they like jammed in like their 10 most favorite things into that project. Yeah. And then you have to kind of whittle them back out a little bit. Pick one of these, please. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're like, okay, this is cool. This is cool. This is cool. But they all shouldn't go into the same yeah, pie. Right. That makes sense. So, but I think that it's not until you have stopped kind of changing what's in, like, once you figure out who you are as a person, mm-hmm. then you interpret all the parameters in a consistent manner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, then your work starts to become more consistent. And I don't mean predictable. Right, because every job looks different, but you solve problems in the same way. And the reason why it's important, as I say this a lot, is that allows you to solve a problem in a similar manner without duplicating the solution. Mm-hmm. So 
if I design a house and it turned out really great, I don't have to design the same house to have another great outcome. I can put the same kind of values that I put into that process and come up with a completely different project, yeah. right? But the process was still the same. I think on the point of longevity as well, not only everything about just architecture, but you know, if you're in this sort of design way of life, even if you're sim- like quote unquote retired, you have all these sort of hobbies, I think, that feed off of architecture because you're so invested in design, like you could become a furniture maker or you know, that could be do that could be what you do when you retire. Yeah. Like make canoes or something. That's sort of like a whole there's a longevity in the sense that you're invested in this like designing your world kind yeah. of idea. Yeah. Canoes though? I know a guy that graduated. He uh he did his thesis on uh, I think he made a canoe in his thesis and then he didn't go into architecture, he just went into canoe making or kayak making. That's, so that's what he does now. Wow. Yeah. He lives in the woods. No, I think he does. <laughs> I, was, I follow him on Instagram, but he'll have like, you know, really nice photos of, you know, going okay. and planing down a, a piece of a wood. keel or something. Oh. You know, we actually had an intern that worked for us as part of his, I think it was either, I don't think it was master's. He, he went to mm-hmm. Texas Tech. Okay. And, and he built, like from scratch, a canoe as in his like woodworking shop. Not his, the school's. It was oh, like okay. a school project. Oh, okay. But he built like a totally legit, I think it was yeah. like a kayak, actually, not like a canoe, like a kayak. Yeah. It was awesome. It's intense. I know. And then like it ended with him like paddling out into the river. <laughs> and I guess like, if it doesn't sink, you get an A. Yeah. It's <laughs> a great story. <laughs> yeah. That was a guy named John. So he was a cool guy. All right. Number 10. We're at literally. Number 10. Save the best for last? I'm going to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking you gave yourself 30 minutes and you were just like spitballing and then you hit one and you're like, oh, number 10. No, I could have kept going, but yeah. uh, you kind of put me in a corner there. So I'm going to say, yes, okay. this, is the, <laughs> this is the best one. Hype it up. So incredible variety of options within the profession. Okay. I don't know if that really is like the most important one, but I will tell you that based on the bajillion emails I get from people that go, I can't do this or I'm not good at that or how can I get better? I go, you know mm-hmm. what? There's a place. If you want to be an architect, you want to be in the field of architecture, there is a place for you. Yeah. That whatever you are interested in, and as opposed to, I should say, what you're good at as opposed to what you're interested in. Yeah. Because everybody comes out of school thinking that they're good at very particular things, and they realize that there's better people at that stuff, and that's <laughs> not what you're going to do for a living. Yeah. Right? You can still be an architect, but it's maybe not what you thought you were going to do when you got out of school. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot of people make peace with that. I say that like it's a bad thing, right? Because presumably, if you're doing the thing you're good at, it kind of re- suggests that you like it. I don't know that mm-hmm. many people that for a career do something that they absolutely hate, but yet they're awesome at it. <laughs> that doesn't happen too often. Yeah. Hopefully, you get some enjoyment out of being good at stuff. Well, let's hope, right? Yeah. So, that's the premise. You like it. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, unlike other professions, when you graduate with a degree in architecture, Without having to know what type of architecture you're going to focus on. Like, I didn't come out of school going, I'm a residential architect or I'm a skyscraper architect. Yeah. I just came out with a bag of skills, mm-hmm. right? And I think that you can take that bag of skills and go get a job and do almost any kind of work because that's how we're taught. We're taught to think a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and I go, it's great because when you do graduate, you don't know enough about the possibilities to know what you want to do. You know, you can float between a big firm or a little firm, the role of project architect or a designer. You can head towards, you can go on a management path. Mm -hmm. Um, You can work on different building types within different market sectors like hospitality or residential, civic, retail, and on and on and on. And you're still an architect. Yeah. Your degree, your architecture degree will have a marketable value beyond the time of your graduation. So what, who you are and what you think you're going to do at the moment upon your graduation, I can almost guarantee you will change. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a breadth of opportunity, I guess. Be coming out of school with all these skills are sort of not generic, but you have that process oriented mind that you learn through school, and then you're able to pick what path exactly you want, rather than being so dialed into doing a certain thing that you can't really sway away from it. Yeah, well, I think it's. You know, I keep waiting for the economy to kind of adjust, mm-hmm. right? Because we kind of go on these 10-year cycles. Is, yeah, like, like go bad. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. But it's a good way of saying going bad. Yeah. It's just know, like waves, you know? Yeah. There's there's ebbs and flows in this. It's like the uh, movie um, Chansey Gardner. I can't remember the name of the movie, but he's 
Yeah, but he had this saying where he just kind of says things that have to do just with gardening and he somehow he gets talking with like politics, like the Russian uh, czar stuff. And he's like, with every spring, there comes winter or winter after winter comes spring. That sounds like, like the that. last taxi cab ride I drove. <laughs> yeah. That's a rabbit hole. It's not going there. <laughs> All right. Uh, variety. Yeah. So there's a, there's a variety of work. Yeah. That is open to you. Mm-hmm. But I will say that, because this is where I was going when I was talking about the market changing. So when I got out of school, the market was terrible. And I kind of took whatever job I could get, which yeah. turns out to have been very fortuitous because now I'm partners with that guy, right? 25 or six years later or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But it was expected that as you go through the intern development program, that you're going to go work a job for a little while, and then you're going to leave, and you're going to go do something else somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to leave, and you're going to go somewhere else and do something else. And you're going to get this exposure. Like, you know, I tell people all the time that I think within like a 13 or 15-year window, I had like 10 different jobs. Mm. I mean, you name it, I've worked on it. And it helped me. Now, I could only do that if the economy was good. Yeah. Which, it, you know, from the moment I started that process, the economy was doing great. And the the bad side, and again, this could be a different podcast title altogether, but I am the living embodiment of jack of all trades, master of none. I mean, the thing I'm a master of is not necessarily specific to architecture. The things I think I'm good at are communication skills mm-hmm. uh, and keeping people knowing what's going on and yelling at somebody without actually having to raise my voice. Yeah. Um, those kind of things. But it was expected that you're going to do a job when you get out of school and you're going to do it for just a little while and you're going to go do something else. Mm-hmm. And part of that was to find out what kind of jobs do you like? What kind of projects do you like to work on? What market sectors do you respond favorably to? The idea that you came out and got a job and you never went anywhere, that was that was an albatross. Nobody did that. Mm-hmm. You know. Now, when the economy goes bad, People like get a job and they don't ever want to leave it because they don't know if, how easy or hard it's going to be to yeah. get the next one. Yeah, I wonder how different your life would be if it just like stayed bad, like the economy was bad for ten years before you know opening back up again. You almost have to like put in a holding pattern until you're able to jump around. Well, you know what I think it is. I think it changes your work ethic a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, so if you get a job when things aren't great, you don't want to be the guy that gets laid off. So you work harder. And you yeah. do more like in it, it, you kind of get this mindset that this is, this is kind of what it means to do what we do. Mm-hmm. And this is that you work 140%, which I know it's not a thing, <laughs> but you know, say you work 140% of your required hours, right? Yeah. You're supposed to work 40 hours a week and you actually work 60 hours a week or something like that mm-hmm. because you want to stand out. You want to be special. You want to really lock that job in. Right. I think that's what happens when people get jobs when the economies are bad. But when I got out, everything was starting to recover. It was only bad like in the very, very beginning. Yeah. I changed jobs like crazy until I started to realize that what I wanted to do and what I good I was good at were not necessarily the same thing. And then it took me even a while longer to find out like what things I was good at and what I wanted to do and here's how they manifested themselves. Okay. Right. So it was and, an exploration process in that. Yeah. And so I always wonder when people come out of school and they get a job and then they stay there for 15 years. Mm -hmm. For some people, it works out great because then they become vice president of the company, you know, if it's a big firm or, you know, the fact that they've stayed in one place allowed them to climb the ranks. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that person, if they have the ability to climb the ranks, would probably do all right no matter where they went, right? But we're not talking about the first one in the door, it's the last one, or the last one in the door, it's the first one out. There's, have you ever heard that phrase before? In what, what context? Well, it's the idea that when people get laid off or the economy's not doing so good, the first person to get laid off is the last person uh, that was hired. It has like the least amount of tenure. Yeah. Right? So that's one of the things people think about that, uh, okay. that I'm insulated a little bit because I've worked here for 15 years. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of other people that would get removed before yeah. me, the loyal employee. They've invested so much time in me. Yeah. Right. They don't want to get rid of me. Mm. And I'm, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> that's not the pillow I'd want to sleep on every single night. Yeah. Right. That idea. I'd like to say he's invaluable no matter how long he's been here. That's why we're keeping him. Mm-hmm. Right. With that, that's the 10. In my spare time. In my spare time. We really, <laughs> we, we got to come up with a jingle or something. <laughs> All right, Landon. Official. Let's hear it. Again, I don't know what it is. Yeah, we're going to the blind. Oh, I love it. I love not oh. knowing what it is. So what, Landon, what have you been doing in your spare time? Well, <laughs> Will Bob. So I recently inherited a 
coffee grinder. Oh, such a letdown. <laughs> what is a letdown? You went, I recently inherited. I was like, oh, a, a coffee golden. grinder. Oh. <laughs> okay, you got a coffee grinder. Yeah, but it's awesome, though. Okay. Because, <laughs> because it grinds. It's kind of like the only way we have it work. It, but It grinds coffee. Yeah, but amazingly. I don't even understand that. It, it, it's like the grinder pouring combo one. It's a uh, cuisine art, and it um, you essentially just dump the beans in the what, top. Wait a minute. What brand is it? Cuisine art. <laughs> How do you say it? A cuisine art. Cuisine art? Yeah. Yeah, okay. A cuisine art. Cuisine is in the name. Okay, maybe you're right. I've what? always what? said <laughs> I've always said cuisine art. Really? Yeah. Okay. Not cuisine art. Yeah, but cuisine, I guess I- No, cuisine art? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, cuisine art. Cuisine art. You know, that actually makes sense. It does it? It does. <laughs> I thought it did. I was like, cuisine art. And now it's a cuisine art. Cuisine. Now you got me questioning. My you. mind just exploded. My- <laughs> okay, back to this amazing cuisine art. Okay, but just think about it. I've been living all my life, not all my life, but when I started drinking coffee, it was just, you know, pre-ground stuff in a bag, threw it in this cheap coffee maker, you know, and it pours out just what I thought was the best coffee ever. But you put the beans in the top, it grinds it for you instantly, and then it makes the coffee, and it's amazing. It's not stale. It's, like, super strong. It's kind of changed my life a little bit. And I love coffee. I know you don't like coffee. Or not, you don't like coffee. You just don't drink it. I do, no, actually, because I don't like coffee. Okay, well, then you don't <laughs> like coffee. But didn't you tell me off air, you're like, I had too much coffee this morning. I did. I, that's another <laughs> thing. I I have learned my limit because I just use it the first time this weekend. And... I drink the same, I've been drinking like the same amount, but it's like so much stronger. Isn't that just a reflection of how much coffee you put in before the water goes through it? It's, there's like a, there's a certain amount of seep time or the amount of like the time it allows the water. Yeah. Okay. Onto that, the I get that. Or That's like tea. Same concept. You can change it on the machine, you know, weak, strong, medium, whatever. So I just put it on mine on strong because I like strong tasting coffee, but. Cause, cause I'm a man. Oh man. I got. Hair. Where'd you okay? So where'd you inherit this thing from? Oh, so uh, Rachel, my girlfriend's parents. I guess they were upgrading theirs, so they just kind of gave it to her. And she doesn't drink coffee anymore because I knew I liked her. You know, so, so yeah. So you got she, it. She's like, "Hey, Landon, you want this?" And I was like, "Uh, yes." I love wow. coffee. So it's not just a grinder; it actually makes the coffee. It brews, yeah, so it it's kind of like it? yeah, it's like a grinding slash brewing. I don't actually there's an, it's in the name what it does, but it right. grind and brew. We'll put it in the show notes. So we can. We can see the, what you're talking about. The thing about the grinder, it's not like a – so like say you put beans and it's like a blender um, and you just kind of cut them up. The way that the action of the cutting it actually will make it um, – it makes the, the coffee grounds more bitter. But the, the method in which this is called a burr grinder, so essentially it's crushing the beans rather than slicing them. Mm. And somehow that process – I don't know the exact science behind it, the coffee science. It sounds legit. But uh, the way it crushes it actually doesn't release those – bitter aromatics into your coffee. final coffee yeah yeah all right it's pretty do you cool. take your coffee black or do you i drink it black i yeah. i inherited that from my dad he's he just laughs at me whenever i add milk as a kid and go like, little kid coffee <laughs> well how old were you when you had your first cup of coffee um, i don't mean like oh let's get let's make have fun and get two-year-old landon jacked up on coffee yeah. i mean like where you're like i'm gonna have a cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i started in college i didn't i didn't drink coffee in high school it may have been like my freshman or sophomore year. I started drinking coffee like maybe once or twice a week. Yeah, but no. You know, my parents drank coffee every day. My dad really liked his coffee. Yeah, but I don't think his threshold for like high, high you know, he was a Lutheran Norwegian, <laughs> so any kind of coffee was good enough. Yeah, right? <laughs> it'll work. So he would, uh, you know, every night he would actually. I think they use like Folgers. They might even mm. use Folgers crystals for all I know. Mm. Folgers, you don't even know what Folgers crystals is, nope. do you? <laughs> I'm just imagining the giant, like ten gallon container. A, you know, it wasn't that big, but it was probably like a five can, five pound can. Yeah, that you would can opener, opener it up, oh, okay. and he would he would put his scoops in the coffee maker before you went to bed, mm-hmm. and the timer would kick it off at five forty five or something like that. Yep. And then he would have a cup or two before he went to work. At his peak coffee drinking days, I think he was like, like I have I had a pot by noon. Oh my god. I would go crazy. I remember one time I was in school, I thought it'd be okay to like do that kind of thing, like have a giant, two giant cups of coffee one morning. I was, I thought I was going to have a heart attack at 1 p.m. <laughs> I can't, that's one reason I can't drink coffee in the afternoon. Not only because it'll keep you up all day or all night. It's just like I get the jitters. Like right now I'm like really jittery. 
It's a, I like yeah. it. I've been trying to keep calm. Coffee the doesn't time. do that to me. I mean, it does. Yeah. But it just it moves everything along. If you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> also a downside. And I don't want that. Yeah. I don't want that. Because you're like, this is delicious coffee. Pull over. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, I think I I think my next step. I really want to. I've been watching a lot of like video, another YouTube video. Oh my god, you're on, you're on YouTube. That's shocking. <laughs> but there was this. Uh, there was this professional, I don't know you call him, professional, like a coffee enthusiast or like a connoisseur of coffee. And they would do like an A and B and do like a really bad coffee and a really good coffee and try to get the person to guess which one was the most expensive, more expensive. And so I was watching one of these videos and they were talking about how to prepare coffee and blah, 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 blah. It's a whole science and like, mm. you know, behind it. All right. Well, keep us so up. I want to get a French press, I think. Yeah. I want to upgrade to that. This it seems takes legit. much time though. I don't know. It seems like if you're going to do it. You do it right. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's my turn. I'm going to talk about my spare time. All right. What have you been doing in your spare time, Bob? Well, uh, turns out I still don't have any spare time. Oh, <laughs> uh, and it's actually starting to make me rethink this segment. Oh, okay. It's depressing. I've been doing a lot of traveling lately. Mm-hmm. And so we're heading into fall, mm-hmm. right? And my last three work-related trips that I currently know of are coming up, and they're all going to take place within the next six weeks. Oh, wow. Okay. So as a result, I've been putting in a lot of extra time preparing uh, presentations and doing research and, you know, just so you know what you're doing and who you're talking to. And, the okay. you know, you need to understand the dynamics of the room you're walking into. So you got to prepare for that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm going to be presenting at, actually, at the end of this month, I'm going out to the SketchUp Basecamp event. Ooh. I'm one of the presenters out there. I think I'm the only non, well, I was about to say the only non-person. They're all real people. <laughs> human. <laughs> I am human. They have these, it's it's amazing. So like a jillion people go to it. Okay. Diehard SketchUp fans. I mean, these people m- make magic. And so this is, there's like endless, like five or six or seven or eight classes mm-hmm. every minute of every day for a week. Man. I mean, it's huge. And so I'm give, they wanted me to give a presentation when I was out there. And I think I'm the only person not talking about like SketchUp tips and techniques. Interesting. So that'll be interesting to see how that goes. And then so and that takes place at the end of September in Palm Springs, which mm. I have to do research on Palm Springs. So I've never been there before. Okay. Uh, and then when I get back into town, it's only a few days before I have to head out again to an event called Design Chicago where I am participating on a moderated panel along with um, this guy named Joseph Higgins. He's the studio designer for Pogan Pole. And we're going to be talking about kitchens and the evolution of kitchen islands. Interesting. Right? Okay. I have, I have hot opinions. It's <laughs> yeah. a whole convention. Or is it just this talk is about islands? Just just this one is. Okay. It's not yeah. the whole convention on kitchen no. islands. Well, you know, I'm, a, I, I'm on the – I'm a NKBA, National Kitchen and Bath. I'm an mm-hmm. insider. You know, I sit on the board for KBB, which is Kitchen and Bath Business Magazine. Mm-hmm. I know a lot about this stuff. And so I get tapped in as an expert to talk about kitchens and kitchen design and bathrooms and bathroom design and emerging technologies and how are people using the space differently. Yeah. Um, so I'm sitting on a panel to talk about that in Chicago. Okay. And that happens actually in the very beginning of October. And then at the end of October... This is, I'm really, I'm actually pretty excited about this. Uh, I, I head off to Weimar, Germany, which is the cradle of the Bauhaus movement. Oh, wow. Along with a bunch of other experts um, and journalists. Okay. And, uh, and it's like people from like National Geographic and Smithsonian. I mean, it's, it's a lot of legit people. It's all go to like where Bauhaus as a movement, like this is ground zero. Interesting. Is um, it like a centennial of the Bauhaus, or that well, would actually it, be? It's next year, the okay. centennial, the 100 year anniversary of Bauhaus. It's actually next year. Oh, really? So this is the 99th. Wow. <laughs> Celebrate the 99. Then we're then we're the the 99. That's pretty cool. But it's going to be a bunch of moderated panels and discussions yeah. and tours. It's basically all things that celebrate the Bauhaus movement. So I'm heading out there. So they're flying me out there to participate hmm. in that. So there's a lot of work that I'm having to do to associate it with. With all that. Yeah, so. that's a huge international. I guess it's an international convention. It's people yeah. from all over. Yeah. So my spare time is doing more work. More work. <laughs> I know I need to. I, I don't yeah. know. We should call it when I have the time, I do these things. Yeah. Not in my spare time. I'm 
I mean, my spare time where it doesn't include work is thinking about things that I will think about more once I get out of this next kind of six week window. Yeah. Interesting. Right. I was even thinking, I'm going to build this trellis over there and I need to, I'm going to get this and I'm going to cut the rebar and I'm going to get, I have to get a welder. So I don't know, who can I get a welder from? And mm-hmm. I'm going to, I've been thinking about that, but it's not a real thing. Yeah. That's a diversion as I walk from one side of the room to the other, right? To pick up my laptop to start working on a presentation. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm pretty excited, but it's exhausting. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm so tired all the time. <laughs> okay. So that's a wrap. Thank you for being with us for Episode 8, Top 10 Reasons to Be an Architect. If you liked this episode, and I'm going to say that even if you didn't, please be sure to head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast so you can get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded to your podcast player of choice. If iTunes isn't your player of choice, and that's totally cool, we're also available on Google Play, Spotify, TunedIn, a bunch of different Android apps. They're all free. And all you have to do is hit the subscribe button on your podcast listening app to get it. Pretty easy. Also, uh, it would be great if you could take 30 seconds out of your day, head over to iTunes, and leave us a five-star President's Circle rating. Elite. It's elite. <laughs> Actually, it's just a five-star rating. I change the name every year. I wonder how many people even notice that I do that. It's, it's five-star, but it's always a five-star something. Diamond Jubilee, Sapphire. It's going to be something gold it's my bit i don't even know if anyone knows sparking <laughs> sparking star it actually makes a difference and allows us to help keep the podcast rolling along so if you're in a good mood and you're willing to help us out i'd appreciate it if you'd go over to itunes and do that for us be sure to visit the original life of an for show notes links infos and photos from this episode thanks so much for tuning in we'll see you on the next episode sayonara Well, everyone, you got to know that you're the gumbo guy. I am the gumbo guy. You kind of make yourself the gumbo guy once you announce that you've made it once or twice for people. When you brag about how amazing <laughs> it is that people around, like, that's what you're known for. Yeah. You actually said that in one of the podcasts, the Architects and yeah. Chefs one. I've already said it. Oh, yeah, I did. You yeah. did. And I gave it away. So you know what you need to do? Can make, I tell you what you need to do? Make gumbo for all our podcast listeners? No. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? That would be amazing. Two points is not a roll. <laughs> They were just using their B team. A team didn't even show up at, in Texas. I think they didn't even bother. They had some of the band. They had the band members come down. <laughs> they held a vote. Who wants to be quarterback? We're playing A and M. Trombone player was like, "It's my time to shine." Why did he sound like that? Because <laughs> he's trombone. You know, he's got the charade. Two different things going on. I support you, trombone players. Except for you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> So all trombone players named Dave, you just got called out. And these mics, while they're they're not bad, they're not they're not upper shelf, top of the line. They're definitely not the uh, smearing off of microphones. Really, you think that's the top of the line? No, these are the are smear- these, these are, are the smearing We're going for uh, you know the other stuff up there. You don't even know what, I don't it, even is. Know what it is. <laughs> I requested at bars, and they just laugh at me and make me a pizza sandwich. A pizza sandwich? Yeah, pizza sandwiches. And then just a he pizza do it. folded up? No, they, he doesn't do stuff for you. I guess it's kind of like a calzone. Yeah. Pizza sandwich. <laughs> You're thinking my whole life now.